tonight on NJ Spotlight News. Missing New Jerseyans as the war in Israel escalates. Families here wait for news from loved ones as Governor Murphy condemns the Hamas attack. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. It's a terror act activity. Also, chaos on the Hill, the war adding to the urgency for Republicans to fill the House Speaker seat. Right now, um, their hands are tied. They can't do anything without a speaker. Plus, fentanyl overdose fears. 110,757 Americans lost their lives to drug poisonings. That's over 300 people a day. The state's Drug Enforcement Administration hosts a family summit to help increase awareness on the drug's deadly effects. And a free vaccine clinic. Hoboken offers free shots of the newest COVID-19 vaccines as health officials warn of a spike in cases this winter. People still die, so it's, you know, it's been proven effective, so that's why I'm here. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Wednesday night. I'm Brianna Venosi. At least one New Jersey resident is among the dead in Israel. Governor Murphy today confirming Paramus native Itay Glisko was killed during this weekend's terror attacks on the country. According to reports, the 20-year-old was a dual citizen serving in the Israeli Defense Forces when he was killed Saturday in a surprise attack by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. The governor's office also confirming New Jerseyans are among the missing, including Idan Alexander, a 19-year-old Tenafly High School graduate who was also serving in the Israeli military near the Gaza Strip. According to state officials, Alexander has been unaccounted for since Saturday. That's when armed Hamas militants raided homes and communities, brutally killing entire families, babies and civilians. The onslaught has killed more than 1,200 people in Israel and injured thousands more. In Gaza, at least 1,100 people have died. The Palestinian American Community Center says multiple New Jersey residents are reporting their family members have been killed in Gaza. New Jersey Democratic Congressman Donald Norcross was part of a small congressional group who met yesterday in Israel with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a show of unity. The Garden State is, of course, home to some of the largest Jewish and Palestinian communities in the country, and the effects are being felt deeply here at home. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. As Israel massed its soldiers along the Gaza border before an apparent ground invasion, New Jersey families with relatives on both sides of this brutal war worried about loved ones and braced for the worst. At a Hoboken vigil, Governor Murphy memorialized the dead, more than 2,000 total, including Paramus-born Ite Glisko. It has touched New Jersey. Uh, there is reported one 
loss of life. We know that there is at least one missing uh, Aiden Alexander, Bergen County. I've got no update on his whereabouts, a member of the IDF. Idan Alexander served with the Israeli Defense Forces near the Gaza border. He graduated from Tanafly High School three years ago, and his school noted, we know that many in our community are suffering. Our thoughts are with all of our families and their loved ones. News coverage of the Hamas terror attack has uncovered horrific images. One Israeli soldier commented, You see the babies, the mother, the fathers in the bedrooms, in the protection rooms, and how the terrorists kill them. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. I started to see all of the pictures and all of the videos. Um, they're horrible. Wyckoff resident Nancy Dubin's son, Ari, is serving in the IDF. She hadn't heard from him since Sunday and feared for his life. Finally, late last night, a recording arrived from Israel, and she listened with joy to her son's voice. Please let my mom know I'm alive and that I'm like, I have 10 toes and 10 fingers and everything's okay. Now, I know that I'm one of the lucky people. I can't imagine what other people are going through right now. Families trying to get back home to New Jersey still can't get plane tickets, and they've reached out to officials. The governor said they're working to help them find a way home and provide humanitarian aid. Putting aside the horror, the brutality of Hamas, which must be brought to justice and eliminated. Let's not forget that we have not just one of the largest Jewish and Israel-American communities of any American state, but we have the largest Palestinian state. Israel's established what it calls a total siege of Gaza. It's blocking shipments of food, water, power and medicine. It's impossible to even leave the area. Israel reportedly bombed the only open exit point to Egypt and continues its bombardment of targets inside Gaza in ongoing retaliation for the Hamas attack. Among New Jersey's Palestinian population, several families have gotten reports of loved ones killed. Dua Abu Fari's family is in Gaza. So far, they've escaped harm, but... Many children and women are being killed around them, so it's getting worse and worse every day. They've been bombing more than before. There's nowhere to hide. Um, they're saying the, sorry, sorry, it's okay. Rania Mustafa couldn't stop her tears, but her friends in Gaza urged her to report conditions there. They're saying there's, it's literally just dropping missiles everywhere and there is nowhere to hide. We're against any lives being killed, but it's very clear that an Israeli life means more than a Palestinian life. Mustafa says Hamas are Palestinians. She points to protests like the one at Senator Cory Booker's office, which often elicit backlash from others. We really need to, I think, stop putting a bandage on this issue and really get to the root cause of it, which is there has been an occupation for 75 years. But political analyst Yale Aronoff says Hamas opposes any Israeli state. She says this Iran-backed attack foils peace talks. One motivation uh, may have been to obstruct um, the uh, progress that potentially could have been made on normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And it's really, really tragic um, because they don't want an independent Palestinian state on part of the land. They want an independent Palestinian state on all of the land. She expects the violence will escalate. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News.
On Capitol Hill, House Republicans voted behind closed doors today, choosing Majority Leader Steve Scalise as their party's nominee for speaker. The GOP congressman from Louisiana still needs to win the majority vote from the full House, that includes Democrats, to become the chamber's leader. The conference was closely divided, though, between Scalise and Ohio conservative representative and Trump ally Jim Jordan, with just a 14-vote difference. The move comes as the GOP stares down the outbreak of war in Israel and military aid commitments from the U.S. For more on what this means, I'm joined by Rutgers Camden Associate Professor of Political Science, Kelly Dittmer. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me. I mean, critical uh, happenings on the Hill today. The House GOP behind closed doors put forward Steve Scalise as their nominee for the speaker. What does this say? Yeah, I mean, it puts us a step forward to getting to the floor. And now the question is, can Steve Scalise actually win the 217 votes? He needs to become speaker. Um, and I think right now that is not at all a sure bet, because if you look at the vote that came out of this committee, at least 99 Republicans did not vote for Steve Scalise. Um, maybe they will all fall in line. Um, but from the, the comments we heard even before the meeting today, um, it's likely that there will be some holdouts in that group, and it might be anywhere from a very small number that can still stymie the vote, as we saw previously with Kevin McCarthy, to a large number who might force the conference to go back to these closed-door meetings and figure out another route to a solution. So I think we still have work that we'll see needs to be done to get to a speaker, ultimately. Uh, this scene was chaotic enough. Add to it the tragedy unfolding right now in Israel. What does that mean for how these negotiations are playing out on the Hill and, and really how tied the hands of Congress are right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it really sheds uh, a bright spotlight on uh, the lack of uh, a speaker. And so it puts a lot of pressure on the Republicans to really come together and figure out how they're going to proceed through this gridlock so that the business of Congress can be done. And of course, at this moment, one of the most important points of business is on the substantive side, making sure that any resources that need to be sent to uh, the Middle East get moved forward. Um, and then symbolically, I mean, Congress is looked to as a voice um, in international politics as well. And so it matters that they put forth resolutions, they speak on the floor um, in, in support of our allies um, and against these atrocities. And right now, um, their hands are tied. Do you see this hampering the U.S.'s ability to aid Israel, as President Biden came out boldly yesterday saying that we would give Israel essentially whatever it needs to defend itself um, without a speaker. Is it possible? Yeah, I mean, I think that the administration is going to find all of the ways that they can move around this, but it is going to certainly be much easier um, and important for Congress to be functioning so that a, a full support package um, can be sent to the Middle East. I mean, if this drags out, we know what happened with Speaker McCarthy, 15 ballots. I guess my question is twofold. A, can Congress afford to go through a lengthy process again, given the circumstances? Uh, and B, if they do, how far does that set us back in the goals that need to be accomplished uh, immediately? I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, the answer to the first is 
it, it might not matter if we can or can't handle it, right? Um, it's not good for democracy. But there will come a point where there has to be a resolution, in large part because also, remember, the government will not be funded in another, I don't know what the count is now, but we're probably under 40 days. And so, um, you know, there will be increasing pressure on uh, the members of Congress, and particularly in the Republican conference, to figure out a solution. Um, and I think they will. Um, um, but they're certainly uh, digging in their feet right now, largely for partisan and ideological reasons, which is unfortunate because I think that that um, continues to play into uh, voters' perceptions that this Congress is, is unable to get things done. Kelly Dittmer is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers Camden. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. Families who've lost a loved one to fentanyl poisoning or whose lives have been affected by the tragic overdose crisis are gathering this week for an annual event with the Drug Enforcement Administration in New Jersey, searching for ways to work together and slow the unprecedented rate of deaths being caused by the deadly drug. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. Today, we gather together as a community in memory of those who have lost their lives to drug poisonings, specifically fentanyl. The New Jersey Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration held its second annual Family Summit today, focused on the scourge of fentanyl in our state and nation. Last year, according to the CDC, 110,757 Americans lost their lives to drug poisonings. That's over 300 people a day. The speakers included the top law enforcement professionals in the state, outlining what each of their departments is doing to combat the growing problem of fentanyl poisonings in New Jersey, like New Jersey's Attorney General Matt Platkin. For a long time, the addiction crisis was viewed as a criminal problem, and punitive approaches were deployed, and I think we can all agree were resounding failures. And we have changed our approach in New Jersey collaboratively across our federal, state, and local partnerships to tackle this epidemic for what it is, a public health crisis, where law enforcement plays a critical role, but not the only role. And New Jersey's U.S. Attorney Philip Selinger, who spoke about the Department of Justice's recent initiatives, including $345 million for naloxone distribution, peer support for families who've lost loved ones, and education and awareness around fentanyl. The violent drug cartels are manufacturing the fentanyl in fake pills. So they're designed to look exactly like the brand name pills, but instead they contain deadly amounts of fentanyl. Agents of the DEA, uh, federal prosecutors in my office, are working tirelessly to prosecute those who are flooding our communities with these drugs. In New Jersey alone, there were approximately 2,900 overdose deaths last year, which is a slight improvement from the more than 3,100 deaths the year prior. But the state's recently launched an expansion of its harm reduction sites, with the goal of having at least one in every county, as Acting Health Commissioner Dr. Caitlin Bastin explains. The harm reduction centers can offer a multitude of services. They range, so they can have from anything that prevents overdose, death, to preventing infection. They can test for infections. Some sites do more than others. Some offer kind of a broader spectrum of care and even medication on site. So with that multitude of services, we could be saving lives from all different ways. It's a battle. It's a battle. 
beyond the information sessions, this summit gives grieving loved ones a chance to talk about what comes next after their loss and how they turn their pain into advocacy. Like my heart was broken yet I was getting constantly stabbed, you know. My son was poisoned to death. Um, his investigation is a murder investigation because he was deceived. I think we need to really talk about how fentanyl most of the time is being put in things that people don't know what they're doing. It's a poisoning, it's not an overdose. An overdose is when you do something that you're aware of and you do too much and you overdose and die. We are now focused really on education, education in the schools, um, education in the community. The photos of lost loved ones around the room, a somber reminder of why this work matters so much. In New Brunswick, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Solitary confinement is often considered the harshest punishment handed out in prisons. It's known to cause mental stress so severe, the United Nations classified the practice as torture. In an attempt to ban that action, state leaders in 2019 passed a law that prohibits keeping an inmate in a cell for 20 hours or more per day over an extended period of time. But a new report finds the people who run New Jersey's prisons aren't following that law. Terry Schuster is the state's corrections ombudsperson, leading the office that monitors New Jersey prison conditions, and he joins me now to discuss the report. Terry Schuster, thanks for coming on the show. I'm interested to know specifically, what did your team find in this report about the use of solitary confinement? We went out around to the disciplinary housing units in four of the prisons and we fielded a survey with the people who were living there. And, uh, and so we connected with about um, 200, 250 people and asked them, how much are you getting out of your cell on a given day? And almost everybody said less than two hours. Um, we then um, went sort of facility by facility and we gathered um, the logs that the Department of Corrections, the prison system itself, keeps about people's movement in and out of their cells. And we were able to kind of piece together sort of an average week at each facility, making the same findings that people really weren't getting out of their cells. So this is hundreds of state prisoners who are spending about 22 hours a day in that cell. Yeah, on any given day, it's between 700 and 800 people. So why is this still happening uh, when there are protections put in place? Why are prisoners still being sent to these uh, confined quarters? Uh, you know, to actually comply with the law um, and implement, you know, a, a schedule that gets people out of their cells and into activities and congregate um, interaction, uh, it's a lot of logistics. And I think the logistics can be interrupted really uh, frequently by um, by fights or by um, medical care or by understaffing. Um, one of the things that we found, this is sort of the good news, is that it can be implemented effectively and the department has um, been able to prove that at the women's prison. So in the disciplinary housing unit that's at the women's prison, people are offered four hours out of their cell. The key, I think, is in having fewer people on that housing unit. And that's going to require some other policy changes and practice changes about how do how does the department deal with rule violations and um, and can they have fewer people going into these 
settings where their movement is very, very controlled. Because if they have fewer people, they can get them out. So less people would help these facilities to comply and be set up to succeed uh, with this law. Yes. And I think, too, that, you know, more consistent staffing, better sort of follow up on their own data. Um, you know, the department is keeping logs of who's getting out of their cell at what time and, and for what. Um, so they should be able to set performance goals and say, hey, for the last month, we really weren't getting people out enough. Let's try to improve it by 10%, 15% in the next month and monitor our own performance. Uh, really important findings. Terry Schuster is the state's uh, corrections ombudsperson. Terry, thanks so much for coming on to chat. Thanks. In our spotlight on business, stocks are on the move following a surprise wholesale inflation report out today, which surged higher than analysts expected for September, underscoring the challenge the Fed faces in taming those economic pressures. Here's a look at how the markets closed. Support for the Business Report provided by Junior Achievement of New Jersey. Providing students with skills and knowledge to explore, choose, and advance their career paths for a brighter future. Online at janj.org. Finally tonight, if you need to visit a hospital in Hudson County, make sure you pack a mask. Half of Hudson's six hospitals are reinstating a mask mandate due to a recent spike in coronavirus cases. Hudson Regional Hospital, Jersey City Medical Center, and Palisades Medical Center in North Bergen have all put the safety requirement back in place. So have all RWJ Barnabas Health Hospitals across the state and some of Hackensack Meridian Health's medical centers. According to the State Department of Health, weekly case counts have increased from about 1,000 per week during the summer to a range of three to more than 4,000 per week since kids returned to school. This week, Hoboken officials also brought back a pandemic-era necessity, a free COVID-19 vaccine clinic with the reformulated shots targeting new variants. Raven Santana was there. Well, I don't want to get sick. You know, people still die, so it's, you know, it's been proven effective, so that's why I'm here. Hoboken resident Christine Rapella is just one of more than 100 people that showed up to receive the new updated Moderna and Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines. Rapella was able to do so free of charge at a clinic hosted by the city of Hoboken and Hudson Regional Health Commission. It's the updated formula, so um, it's protective against the uh, newest variant that's emerging. And we have 120 appointments. And right now at this time, we are actually appointment only due to the amount of vaccine that we received from our distributor. So um, appointments are um, strongly recommended because we can't guarantee walk-ins at this time. Those walk-ins now include anyone six months or older. We have a lot of interest in um, vaccinating and adults and parents getting their six months old, six month and up vaccinated. Um, a lot of pharmacies are only giving out to ages three and up. So we're providing an important piece by vaccinating that age group from six months and up 
gap where a lot of providers or pediatricians offices don't have the vaccine. So we're just we're filling that gap. Getting vaccinated is, is important. It's a regular thing that you got to do. It's we're past the crisis mode of the past few years and now it's getting used to it. It's like, hey, flu shot, COVID shot to try to get the, the newest variant uh, covered. Um, not going to prevent it, but I know it will be it will make things much easier. Um, is this your first time getting the vaccine? No, this is like my fifth time. And it's his first time? <laughs> it's his third. Boo-boo. It's a boo-boo. You okay now? Yeah. Yeah. Good job. High five. Good job. For those of you who are ready to get their shot like Benjamin, inventory has been a common barrier for those ready to receive their shot. That's because some New Jerseyans are finding it difficult to get an appointment for themselves or their children after a rocky start to the rollout. Professor in the Department of Public Health at Montclair State University, Stephanie Silvera, says logistical challenges aren't rare when rolling out new vaccines. So I think anytime you're trying to roll out new vaccines or the next booster, especially in something that is still relatively new, there can be logistical challenges, one of which is the temperature at which these vaccines continue to need to be held at. And so there's a production side and then there's distribution. Because of that removal of the emergency order, there may be a perception that you cannot get the vaccine for free. And that's not true, particularly in New Jersey, where there are programs to support access to free vaccines. Which is why Hoboken City Council President says partnerships are critical tools to creating resources for the most vulnerable communities. People are looking into the winter season and saying, it's time for me to get my updated vaccines, my flu shots, um, even RSV I'm getting requests for. So I think people know now to look to the city for some level of infrastructure around their vaccine process. Staff says due to the demand and need for the COVID-19 vaccines, they plan to hold another clinic next week. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. And that does it for us, but make sure to tune in tomorrow night for Chatbox with David Cruz. David celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month with two-time Olympian and New Jersey native Lori Hernandez, who explains how her Puerto Rican heritage influenced her and inspired her gymnastics career. That's tomorrow night at 6 p.m. on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. And don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. The members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Horstead, committed to the creation of a new, long-term, sustainable, clean energy future for New Jersey.